Okay, let's continue with the rest of the integumentary system notes. Um, <clears throat> I believe we ended off around slide 24 when we were talking about the basic functions of the uh, of the skin. And as we know, it serves protective purposes. Uh, it's important for secretion and absorption, immune function, sensory reception, temperature regulation. Um, but I wanted to quickly uh, talk about um, the vitamin D issue a little bit more. Um, so on slide 23... It refers briefly to uh, the fact that the skin's in involved in the formation of vitamin D, and it is. Um, vitamin D is an interesting topic. Even the name is kind of interesting. You know, by definition, a vitamin is a micronutrient, uh, so something that we need in, in relatively small amounts um, from the diet. Um, but uh, as we'll see, um, the, the, even the name vitamin D is a little strange because we can make it ourselves. We can make it endogenously. Uh, and that process actually begins in the skin. So I believe, as we talked about this week, um, vitamin D, in order to, for it to be formed in the body, the first thing we need is exposure of the skin to ultraviolet radiation. Uh, and that means that you need a sufficient surface area, uh, a sufficient amount of surface area of the skin for a sufficient amount of time being exposed to the sun, uh, <laughs> which becomes a problem for, um, you know, populations like ours who live in cold environments and <laughs> and cover up uh, during part of the year and don't uh, don't get enough or don't get um, yeah enough skin exposure to the sun especially during the winter months but that's a discussion for another day um, <clears throat> let's talk about what vitamin D uh, does um, vitamin or what it is uh, it's a lipid soluble uh, vitamin uh, which so it's fat soluble which means it can be stored in the body in in in, uh, in certain amounts which is a good thing especially when you're talking about, again, uh, populations in, in colder environments that aren't going to get exposure to the sun year-round. <clears throat> um, it actually kind of ends, uh, it, it kind of uh, operates like a hormone in how it interacts with cells uh, throughout the body. And, and it's it's something that it is quite important, and we, we have a, a good feeling that it is, uh, there's, there's evidence to suggest that it's important in a number of different functions. So this, this vitamin D deficiency has been proposed to be involved in all sorts of things from, uh, from depression to autoimmune disorders to, uh, you know, certain types of cancer. Those topics are difficult because there's not a lot of uh, conclusive evidence that, that supports those links at this time. So we won't really go into any of that, um, but it is most definitely involved in some bone disorders, um, primarily because the, the biggest job of vitamin D is to support absorption of calcium uh, from, the, from the gut. So essentially, if you're vitamin D deficient, um, even if you have sufficient calcium intake in your diet, you'll have difficulty, um, you'll have difficulty absorbing it into your blood from the gut. And so you won't have it available to you the way that you would expect, you know, just by eating it. Um, so that leads us to kind of the two primary disorders that are known to be definitively linked to uh, vitamin D deficiency, which, it, which are rickets and osteomalacia. Rickets, R-I-C-K-E-T-S, and osteomalacia, O-S-T-E-O-M-A-L-A-C-I-A. And they're both quite similar in that they... Um, they involve the softening of bones, which makes sense if uh, vitamin D is is related to uh, to calcium uh, to to um, vitamin D deficiency is related to inability to absorb sufficient calcium, which mineralizes bones. So um, the presentation of the disorders, although, uh, is quite different, and the major difference is in rickets is in children. And children, of course, are still skeletally immature and growing and developing, um, and so 
when uh, when somebody uh, so a child has rickets due to vitamin D deficiency and their bones are softer than they should be, um, what ends up happening is they end up bowing, so they actually bend and change shape. Uh, if you uh, if you Google rickets, you'll see uh, good examples of what I'm talking about. And uh, the problem is that um, because this occurs during development, once the child's growth plates close, so you know in their late teens, early twenties, <clears throat> those skeletal deformities become permanent, uh, and they they'll they'll ossify hard in that way. And so there's permanent deformities. The diff that's the primary difference between that and osteomalacia, which the population for osteomalacia is, is adults. So it's a similar issue in bone softening due to vitamin D deficiency, but in an adult. So the, the risks with something like that would be, uh, would be things like uh, bone fractures, um, but you wouldn't have the deformity that you would have in, uh, in rickets. So again, this is largely preventable. Um, due to or this is largely preventable, we know what the cause of these uh, of these conditions are. Uh, as long as you get sufficient vitamin D in the diet, it's not an issue at all. Um, now, again, you can get it in the diet, uh, and it's important to note that uh, that vitamin D being fat soluble, um, the dietary sources of it are primarily animal foods. So, um, good dietary sources of it would be fatty fish. Uh, and uh, eggs, particularly the yolks, uh, that's where the that's where you find fat soluble stuff in eggs. Um, now, of course, we know that since we know that vitamin D is so important, we'll fortify foods with it. So, um, in a lot of milks and juices, and even things like cereal, um, you'll find uh, that vitamin D has been added because we know that it's so important. Now, again, back to the the skin. I mean, what's happening with the skin? Um, the, we can make vitamin D, of course, endogenously within our own body. And the first step of how you do that begins with ultraviolet light exposure to the skin. And that's not the end of it. Um, there's actually three things involved in the formation of vitamin D. And the acronym to remember the steps is SLIK, S-L-I-K. Uh, and so that implies that the, the three steps involved are exposure of the skin to ultraviolet light, the S, and then that doesn't make active vitamin D yet. The, what it, the chemical that's made travels to the liver, LI, for processing, <clears throat> where it's chemically altered, and then that will eventually make its way to the kidneys, K. Uh, and in the kidneys, that's where we activate that chemical into the, into the active form of vitamin D, which is called vitamin D3. Uh, so S-L-I-K, make sure that you remember the steps involved in that. <clears throat> uh, let's move on to slide 25 uh, and briefly talk about nails. <clears throat> so nails are, um, if you look at slide 26, you'll see the, the diagram. Um, we know obviously where nails are on the, <laughs> on the tips of the fingers and the toes. Um, nails are not living tissue. They're primarily keratin. So it's a, it's that, a thick layer of that protein keratin. <clears throat> and uh, um, nails, obviously, in order to, well, the fingers to make this keratin protein have to have living cells, and that exists in, uh, in around it. So if you look at the diagram B on fingernails, you're going to see uh, kind of a pinkish part. The, uh, the nail, uh, sorry, the nail bed, which is, uh, lies underneath the bulk of the nail. Uh, and then the uh, cuticle. Uh, so the, the medical term for a cuticle is uh, eponychium, and uh, the eponychium uh, is, of course, you know, living, uh, living skin. 
Uh, and so <clears throat> you have the eponychium and you have the nail bed producing the, uh, the protein keratin, which makes the fingernail. Um, so nails will grow uh, about, uh, or fingernails will grow about four millimeters a year, and they grow co uh, constantly. So they don't change their rate. They pretty much grow at a relatively consistent rate. Um, of course, that can be modified by dietary factors and activity and genetics and stuff like that. Uh, but they pretty much keep growing uh, indefinitely. Uh, toenails, same kind of idea, just uh, generally not quite as much, maybe about half as much, say about two millimeters a month ish again of course there's there's variations on that person to person um <clears throat> no so fingernails give us a protective function for the fingers they give us you know f uh, function in that they help us grasp things uh so um important for that uh, but not much else as far as our discussion today <clears throat> which takes us to hair um so hair also <clears throat> most most of the uh, the hair that we, you see superficially is also not living tissue. It's not cellular. It's mostly, again, uh, variations on that keratin protein. <clears throat> so if you slide forward to uh, to slide 29, you'll see the, the other parts that are involved in hair. <clears throat> so the living tissue exists down in the dermis. So you have your uh, hair follicle. Um, so if you take a, a human hair and uh, pull on it, pull it out and you see a little uh, white thing at the end what you're seeing is the the hair follicle and the, the hair bulb so surrounding that follicle you're going to have living cells which are producing that uh, that hair shaft the the keratin okay so um the uh, you know hair is going to perform it's not quite as important for us now but uh but evolutionarily speaking hair is important for protection um it gives us uh, it helps keep us warm uh, as it traps air um, it gives us protection against uv light on top of the head um and you know it can be used for sensory detection so um hair doesn't I mean, being just a protein, keratin doesn't have uh, nerve endings, but um, the attachment down in the dermis, uh, if it moves due to movement of the hair, so say something brushes against it, um, then that can that can trip uh, um, nerve endings that can give us information about our, what's going on in our environment. Now, if you look down in, uh, in that diagram again on slide 29, <clears throat> You see, there's some other accessory structures that are that are involved with hair, uh, and the first one <clears throat> would be that there are sebaceous glands, uh, which make a, a substance called sebum. S e b u m. You're going to see that term come up uh, in a couple slides when we talk about exocrine glands. Um, so sebum is kind of the, the oily sub, oily substance that uh, coats the shaft of hairs uh, and gives it a protective and waterproofing effect. Um, you also see in that diagram that within the dermis you're going to have a muscle that attaches to the uh, to the base of, of a hair follicle, um, and the muscle is smooth muscle, which means it's involuntary, uh, and it's called the erector pili muscle. So um, <clears throat> contraction of that erector pili muscle under stimulation of the nervous system, something that we'll talk about later on, uh, is is going to be what pulls on the hair to make them stand on end, uh, and it also tugs on the skin a little bit uh, and that's the effect of uh, or that creates the the effect of what you'll see on the surface as goosebumps <clears throat> and we'll talk about that in the involvement with the nervous system later on um, so moving on to the uh, exocrine glands of the skin there's a few different types of exocrine glands uh, that we're going to talk about 
Um, <clears throat> the, the kind of headings would be sweat glands, which we'll talk about first, and then sebaceous glands, which, is the, which make that oily sebum that coats the, uh, that coats the hair follicles. <clears throat> so within sweat glands, there's two major types. We have uh, merocrine sweat glands and apocrine sweat glands. So the merocrine sweat glands are the ones that you typically will probably think of when you think of sweat glands. They're by far the most uh, most numerous. Um, they're all over. So basically, they're all over your your body with uh, with a couple of exceptions. There's some parts of the body that are that have higher concentrations of apocrine sweat glands, and we'll get to that next. But merocrine sweat glands, they're going to make what we think of as sweat, which is mostly water, uh, and it's got some other stuff in it. It's got some electrolytes, so it's got some sodium, potassium, things like that. Uh, and it's also a way for our body to get rid of some waste products as well. Sweat is very important in our thermoregulation abilities. So uh, the general idea is if you're trying to lose heat, so your body is, is too warm, then you'll create sweat <laughs> and through the evaporation uh, of, that, uh, of that mostly watery sweat uh, away from the body, it helps you wick away heat. So you're offloading heat to, to cool yourself down. Uh, so, um, let's discuss the apocrine sweat, apocrine, excuse me, sweat glands, which are sweat glands, but they're different. These are ones that are not found all over the body the same way your typical American sweat glands are, uh, but they're only found in particular locations. And this will start to make sense in a second. Um, the spots that you find them are the axilla, so the armpits, um, around the nipples, uh, and around the pubic and anal region, so in the perineum, kind of uh, in, in deep in the groin. Now, um, these sweat glands are different in that they produce a, a um, they produce a, a, a liquid substance, but it doesn't just have water and electrolytes in uh, in it. It also has some organic compounds, so things like fats and proteins. Um, now, these are the sweat glands that you'll notice are found in places that end up creating an odor. They stink, um, and it's not that this, the secretion of the sweat glands themselves actually uh, stinks because it doesn't. But what it does is it can stink when it's when it's uh, acted on with those organic compounds that it that are secreted by those glands are acted on by or metabolized by bacteria okay um, so again probably not a surprise to anybody um, we don't typically actually activate those apocrine sweat glands until puberty so that's when people start having body odor uh, and it's because of the activation and production of, of substances from these particular glands uh, and next, we're back to the sebaceous glands. I mentioned um, they produce that oily substance called sebum, S-E-B-U-M, uh, which is essentially a waterproofing lubricant uh, for uh, for hair and skin. So um, it's it's uh, produced around the hair follicle and it comes out uh, around uh, around the uh, the shaft of the hair. Uh, and it's an oily substance. Um, again, these are activated during uh, puberty, kind of similar to the apocrine sweat glands, uh, and they are um, influenced heavily by, uh, by hormones, and particularly androgens like testosterone. Um, so it means that there's a link between um, sebum formation and things like, uh, things like um, acne and, uh, and, and those kinds of things that happen during puberty. Um, and the other exocrine glands of the skin will be ceruminous glands and mammary glands. So cer uh, cerumen is earwax. So you only have ceruminous glands uh, in the, um, the external ear canal. 
uh, they make uh, this specialized earwax, cerumen. Um, it has a protective function. It's meant to uh, lubricate that, uh, the, the, what's called the acoustic meatus, so the, basically the, the whole of the ear canal, uh, and the tympanic membrane, the eardrum, uh, as well as trapping foreign material and debris and stuff. Uh, that anything that gets into the ear uh, it traps it to be able to to protect the uh, the tympanic membrane from that. Um, interestingly, mammary glands are actually um, modified sweat glands. They obviously produce something very different. Um, but uh, um, we'll talk about mammary glands a little bit more in uh, a reproductive system at another time. Okay. Um, the next topic would be uh, repair of the skin. So. Basically, if there's damage to the to the skin, uh, there's two possibilities of how things can go. Um, there can be either regeneration, which is preferable, uh, or fibrosis. So regeneration means that the um, that there was able to be some uh, repair and replacement of the cells that were damaged or or killed during whatever the the uh, you know the, the damaging stimulus was. The alternative is fibrosis. So typically you're going to have some combination of these two things together, dependent on how severe and how, how severe the damage was and, and how big the area was that, that is damaged in the skin. So fibrosis, we're going to see this term come up a lot later on, um, basically means the development of fibrotic scar tissue. So it's, it's primarily proteins like collagen. Now the important thing to remember is that when our body uses fibrosis, for tissue repair, um, it's essentially patching damaged regions and filling it in with this fibrotic uh, uh, protein, uh, protein-heavy uh, scar tissue, uh, which means that it's not replacing it with cells. Uh, so in regeneration, you have uh, replacement of, of cells that have died or, dam or were damaged with new cells that do the same job that uh, the previous cells would have done. In fibrosis, that's not the case. So scar tissue, you'll, you'll recognize, does not function as regular tissue does. Um, if, you, if anybody has a scar or seen a scar somewhere, um, you'll notice that the scar doesn't look or feel or act like skin, right? It doesn't stretch the same way skin does. It doesn't produce hair the way skin does. It doesn't sweat the way normal skin does because it's not technically skin, or right? it's not technically um, epithelial tissue made of living cells. It is fibrotic scar tissue. So that idea ha um, will come back around when we talk about um, other topics later on, because this issue of uh, regeneration and repair and replacement versus fibrosis, uh, it applies in, in all tissues all throughout the body, um, and how we are able to, uh, to either repair and replace cells where they're damaged and still have functioning tissue left over, or whether our body will end up using this, um, this scar tissue um, formation uh, to patch damaged areas, but lose the, abil the functional ability of what those cells were doing. So we'll talk about that a bunch later. <clears throat> now, specifically relating to wound healing, um, there's a few stages involved in uh, in the healing of a, a superficial wound. <clears throat> Remember that because there are um, microscopic blood vessels that permeate pretty much all living tissue for the most part, um, when you damage skin superficially, you are uh, uh, also not just damaging cells, but you're going to be damaging blood vessels as well. 
And so the damage of, of cells is going to release chemicals that are going to create this cascade of events, which we'll talk about at another time, the, the details at least. But the, the, the short version is that chemicals are attracted to the area where the damage is, as stimulated by the damaged cells and blood vessels. Uh, and the appropriate inflammatory chemicals will come to the area and start um, forming a blood clot. Uh, so the so the blood clot will essentially act as a, a temporary plug uh, <clears throat> to fill a space <clears throat> where there was damaged tissue, and then the body goes through this process of of creating subsequent scar tissue. Um, so the first thing that occurs is uh, something called granulation tissue, <clears throat> and then eventually um, connective tissue will will fill in uh, will fill in the wound. Um, again, at another time, we will talk about the differences between something called first and second intention healing. Um, it's for another class, um, but that basically refers to how the tissue actually, or how the skin actually repairs um, once it's once it's done healing, uh, and relating to whether there's decent replacement of the of the cells that were damaged, um, but with new functioning living cells, or if it's a bigger wound that can't be filled in or repaired uh, sufficiently with with uh, re with replacement living cells. <clears throat> Um, how much of that is going to be filled in with uh, with fibrotic scar tissue? So we'll talk about that in uh, in a, another class. Um, <clears throat> the the next topic to discuss would be burns. Um, so obviously damage to the skin again, uh, primarily through transfer of energy into the uh, into the into the cells of the skin. So you know things like uh, heat or, or radiation, and that includes you know ultraviolet radiation, um, <clears throat> electric shock. Of course, you get chemical burns. Um, Ultimately, they're all causing damage to the skin, and, uh, and there are, of course, there's a spectrum of how significant these injuries can be. We'll call them first, second, and third degree burns based on how deep into the skin they're they're penetrating. Um, and uh, and burns are not uh, not something to be taken lightly, especially as you get in lightly. Excuse me, uh, especially as we get uh, um, into the more severe types. Um, remember that the skin is a is a barrier. So if you damage the skin, you're you're missing uh, a patch or a chunk of of of, um, of continuous skin. You now have a, a big area potentially that's exposed to the your environment, and that means it's an infection risk. Uh, and also, the skin is important for keeping water in the body. Uh, so fluid loss is a real big problem for people that have uh, issues with uh, with burns. Uh, and, uh, and if they're in a hospital setting, of course, they'll need to be, well, wherever they end up, they'll have to be adequately hydrated with fluid replacement. So it's um, it's not something to be taken lightly. Now let's talk about the, the different um, degrees of burns. <clears throat> They're based on the depth. So remember, um, from superficial to deep, you have epidermis, dermis, and then the hypodermis or subcutaneous tissue. So a first degree burn is going to be defined as something that involves only the epidermis. Um, so there's, you know, there can be redness and pain, um, but uh, but by you know, definition of the first degree burn, you're not going to get um, that blistering that you'll see with a second degree burn. So with a second degree burn, uh, it means that you have uh, the damage has penetrated deep enough through into the skin that it's affected the dermis, and you get that uh, that bubbling, uh, blistering uh, effect. Um, so uh, the um, there, I mean, there's a, because the dermis is quite thick compared to the epidermis. There can be subcategories of of um, how how deep the second degree burn is, but we'll make the definition just 
for now that it involves the dermis. A third degree burn means that the damage is penetrated through the epidermis, into the dermis, and all the way through the dermis, affecting the subcutaneous layer and or potentially deeper than that. So deep to the subcutaneous layer, you're gonna have the muscle, um, which would be, a, I mean, a really, really significant burn. But uh, as, as long as it gets through the dermis into whatever's underneath, then uh, we'll classify it as a third degree. <clears throat> Any third degree burn is, is going to require hospitalization. Um, the severity is, of course, going to dictate how what the how the therapy goes. But um, there's probably going to be uh, issues with uh, you know potentially skin grafting um, because that that tissue is going to be essentially destroyed, uh, not going to regenerate with any real. Uh, with a, any real reasonable significance, um, that uh, that kind of condition, in addition to being a risk for things like um, fluid loss and infection, um, it's also remember going to be um, a very metabolically active uh, um, condition. So, so the the tissues that are recovering from that kind of damage are going to need a lot of resources. They're going to need energy. They're going to need nutrients. They're going to need water. Um, so. Um, in addition to all the other considerations, um, that person is going to be uh, expending a lot of energy and resources uh, um, healing that tissue. Um, now, we'll discuss burns again in another in a patho class later on in some more detail. Um, <clears throat> but really briefly for now, <clears throat> the, uh, the things to do to manage burns, again, uh, we're going to be watching uh, for managing that fluid loss, and then symptomatic management, again, depending on what the severity is, so we're talking swelling and pain and maybe tissue debridement and uh, and uh, and again obviously uh, the um, managing the infection risk because uh, the skin is protecting against the environment and managing making sure that the person has sufficient resources and calories and energy and nutrients to uh, to heal that tissue. Um, as far as um, severity goes. Um, there are a couple different methods, and we'll use we'll use a, a straightforward one called the rule of nines for approximating the uh, percentage of the of the surface area of the body that has been affected by a burn. So if you jump ahead to slide forty two, um, basically divide the body surface area into regions of um, of uh, of multiples of nine percent. So if you look at that uh, diagram. Basically, the uh, whole head would be nine percent, which means if you had half the head, it would be you know front or back, or it would be four and a half percent. An entire upper limb from shoulder to fingertips is nine percent. So if you had just say the upper arm would be four and a half, or the forearm, the hand would be four and a half, or the front would be four and a half, or the back would be four and a half, but the whole upper limb together is nine percent. Um, the torso, um, the say that the entire torso would be 18% on one side. So you, know, you could break that down as or saying, say, the, if you look on the right, the entire back, for example, will be 18%. Or if you look on the left, you could say the top half, so that the, the thorax would be 9% and the abdomen would be 9%. Um, and uh, so the legs are obviously bigger than the arms. So an entire leg uh, would be uh, 18% of body surface area. So the um, the front of one leg would be 9%, or the back of one leg would be 9%, or the front of the thigh only would be 4.5%, or the front of the lower leg would be 4.5%. But remember that an entire lower limb 
from uh, from groin to f to uh, to the tips of the toes would be 18% of the of the body surface area. So if you add all those up, it makes 99%, uh, and then that leaves us 1% left over for the perineum, uh, an important 1%, but uh, but 1%. Uh, and the last little bit here for these notes is what happens with aging. Um, so as we'll see is a kind of a theme, um, <clears throat> things tend to start not working as well as they should when you get older. So the, the rate at which it repairs slows down. Um, <clears throat> so it means you recover from injury slower. <clears throat> and this is not just specific to the skin. This will apply with just about any other tissue. But in the skin, it's a really visible, noticeable change because we see it superficially. Um, what happens is, as the skin won't repair itself, uh, won't, won't turn over as as quickly as it as it once did, it means we're <clears throat> not making the same um, collagen proteins and 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 matrix. Um, we're not making the same amount of elastin, so you lose start to lose the elasticity of the skin. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't quite bounce back the way it, it uh, once did. Um, <clears throat> we start getting development of wrinkles. So we start not producing uh, hair at the same rate, uh, and essentially, just just uh, uh, eventually doesn't recover as quickly as it once did. Um, the last slide here again. The uh, the thing to take away from this would be um, UV radiation uh, is going to accelerate the process of, of skin damage, uh, <clears throat> which means that as you get older and accumulate more UV radiation over the course of a lifetime, uh, then that effect is going to be um, magnified a little bit. Um, that uh, has effects on on the uh, quality of the skin and and, and healing and, and tissue composition as far as proteins go. But also, of course, um, UV exposure to, or sorry, exposure of the skin to UV radiation, as much as is important for things like <clears throat> production of melanin and uh, production of vitamin D, um, too much exposure, as we obviously know, uh, can damage DNA in the cells of the skin and um, accelerates the, the eventual aging process of the skin and is a known risk of skin cancer. It's actually the biggest risk of, uh, of most types of skin cancers. So that, again, we're not going to talk about that too much right now. That would be a discussion for a patho class later on. Um, but um, but uh, this is you know this is why you want to make sure that you, if you're going to be exposed to the sun, that you, you know, for long periods of time, that you cover up, that you sunblock, that you do all the things that you're supposed to do to protect your skin. And that's it. We will pick up, uh, we'll pick up the lecture with the skeletal system uh, next week.